y'all realize we have new lights? I realize because I can't see. Scott Jones and his uh, company put those in for us this week, so very grateful. If, if you need a Bible, raise your hand, and these guys will be glad to give you one. Take your Bibles and turn to Colossians chapter 1. I'm really grateful I can read my notes without this little thing. Hopefully that will continue. A couple of things I want to mention to you and then we will get started. Number one, which I get almost ducks in a row. I mentioned it, uh, I think, last week, and I know some of you weren't here, and I know your names, and I'm taking them before the throne of God on a regular basis. So, I did mention it last week. I, I want to uh, mention it again. <laughs> so, uh, for those of you that weren't here, if you'd like to stand up and confess your sin, feel free to do so. We'll start with Jake. No, we wouldn't do that. All right, now, um, just a couple, I, I want to mention this, and then I get, I'll be in trouble when we start doing that because he knows me. All right. On a very serious note, we have uh, installed and instituted an emergency response team here at our church. We just pray to God nothing ever occurs like what happened at, at Bellevue uh, Easter Sunday and other places around the country. But we have uh, put a team in place, and that began last Sunday. And uh, if something were to occur, the, uh, we have some guys who <clears throat> are very capable of handling that. Now, here's your job. If something is to occur, something does occur, you have one responsibility. That's to come up here and protect me. I'm a sissy and proud of it. I have no backbone. Uh, If they're going to shoot anybody, it's probably going to be me just to shut me up. So, I don't mean to make light of it. You you have one job as to protect me. No. You have one responsibility. And fortunately, the way our building is is constructed, uh, we just have that one entrance pretty much that you, you got to get in the building. And we're working with the nursery also. But if something were to occur, you you will either hear it or you will be notified. You, you have one responsibility. is just get down on the floor and stay down there. Okay? Get under your chair. Do not run for an exit. If you run for an exit, you might accidentally get shot. Uh, and I'm very, very serious. The, the, the people that trained us are highly trained. They know what they're doing. And they said... The most dangerous thing is crossfire. Just get on the ground and stay on the ground, and they will handle it. Uh, I'm, I'm very confident of that, as well as the Lord. So, obviously, we pray nothing ever happens, but if it does, we have a code word. Now, I have forgotten the code word. <laughs> so, here's what I do. I scream, somebody shoot him, and, and everybody else get down. But, again, all you have to do is, is get down and, and stay down, okay? Now, on another note, two weeks from today, we're going to start doing something brand new in a worship service, so uh, you'll know what's going on. We're no longer going to take up an offering. You're like, all right. Preachers always have the money. We're going to stop taking No, no, no. We want your money. We want even more of it, as a matter of fact. What we're going to do, instead of taking up an offering, we're going to come to your house and just see what you have that we might like. We're going to install offering boxes. There'll be, at that ex- at every exit, there'll be a box. 
And on your way out, you can drop your offering in that box. Now, I realize out here, because you guys are young and, and uh, culturally sophisticated, and I am not, that most of you are giving online already. I, re- I realize that. And as soon as I figure out what online means, I'm going to do that. But uh, you, you can give online. Just go to our website, or, or there are plenty of people who show you how to do it. Uh, I don't even know. Mary writes checks. I just do what I'm told. So there will be boxes at that door that, at each of the exits. You can just drop it in when you come in, when you leave, whenever you want to, if you're not giving online, and that's your preferable way of giving. We will, we will not be taking up an actual offering. Usher's coming down uh, starting in two weeks. Next week we will. The first Sunday in May we will begin taking up, uh, letting you give in that manner. It's really uh, uh, a conviction of stewardship in your life anyway, giving, so uh, let you know. And then one last time I'll, I'll mention for today, it won't be the last time I mention it, we are still in the process of trying to get enough money to buy that bus that I shared with you, and regularly we'll be printing how much where we ha- we are at. We're around thirty thousand dollars at this point, uh, and we need about a hundred and thirty thousand. So uh, God is providing the money, and you can continue to pray about whether you'd like to give toward the bus. All right, take your take your Bibles and turn to Colossians chapter one. Peter mentioned earlier, and I did not know he was going to do that song. It's always been kind of a running joke between me and him, but I do love to tell that story about it as well with my soul. But and I didn't know that he was going to do it today, but it fits very well into what we're going to talk about. We're going to focus on, and I'm going to begin a, a mini-series, mini with me, with me, like one year, starting next week. I'm going to do a little mini-series on the, some of the magnificence of the church, and really, what I want to do today is tie up what we've been talking about about the church. And here's what I want to encourage you to really understand: what Horatio Spafford did is not a normal thing. You you just don't do you, you just don't human beings can't do that. But the Christ in him, his Savior, allowed him to do that. What a, an incredible, powerful testimony! Even to this day, I'm moved every time. I hear that song because I know a little bit of the backstory, and Peter shared it very eloquently with us this morning. When you understand it, you can sit there and you can look at the very spot where your daughters died, and you can write, it is well with my soul. I mean, just incredibly powerful. And here's why this is so important. When we understand who the church is, when we understand who we are in Christ, when we fully understand the magnificence of being the body of Christ, it changes you individually. It changes us corporately. The end of the day's service, we will share the Lord's Supper together. And when you when you stop again and ponder and realize, and clearly when you read it in Scripture, Jesus was reminding them every time you do this, remember and then proclaim. Remember, then proclaim his death till he comes back. That is the only reason that we're still here. It's the only reason that the church exists is to go into all the world and make disciples of Jesus Christ. We are sheep. Our job is to make more sheep. And we need to understand that. And we need to be motivated by that. And most significantly, you need to realize, I need to realize, I need to be reminded, you need to be reminded, 
that every day when you wake up, your father is saying, all right, Rando, here's another chance to share the magnificence of who Jesus Christ is, how he's changed you, how he's changed other people you know, what it means to be part of the church. So let's start in Colossians chapter 1, verse 26, where we left off last week. We're going to transition into the rest of this and wrap it up, this particular part today. Chapter 1, verse 26, talking about the mystery of the church. 126, the mystery which has been hidden from ages and from generations, now has been revealed to his saints. What we need to understand is historically what's going on. The church age, the New Testament age, the last days, all those, the the, uh, term last days used in scripture, and you've heard me say it many times, simply means Jesus' first advent to his second advent. We're in the midst of that. We don't know when the second advent is going to occur. We just know it is. We know he came the first time. We know it's approximately 2,000 years ago. We know he came, he died, he was buried, he rose again, and he, he instituted his body, the church, to carry on. In his stead, he, in what the Holy Spirit, God, the third person of the Trinity, indwells us to go out into the world and proclaim the name of Jesus Christ. Why? Because he alone can change lives. He alone can turn a Horatio Spafford into what he was. He alone can save you. He alone can offer people hope, peace, purpose, meaning, reason for existence, understanding the future. We'll talk about a lot of those things in the next couple of weeks. But here's the the thing I really want to challenge you with today is how special it is to understand the mystery of the church. And Luke chapter 24 is an incredible passage. You don't have to turn there. I'm just going to kind of quote some of it for you. This is after Jesus had risen from the dead. One of his post-resurrection appearances. And there are two disciples on the road to Emmaus. The Bible says this. They encounter Jesus and they say this. We were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel, talking about Jesus. That they had hoped that Jesus would be the Christ or the Messiah. Indeed, besides all this, today is the third day since these things happened. Resurrection Sunday. Yes, and certain women of our company who arrived at the tomb early astonished us when they did not find his body. They came saying that they had, all, they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Certain of those who were with us went to the tomb, and they found it just as the women had said. But him, Jesus, they did not see. Then Jesus said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. And he says that with an exclamation point at the end of the sentence. Ought not the Christ, the Christ of Messiah, ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? Beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Now, I could do a a mini-series just on this, but I won't yet. I want you to know that every time I read that, I get goosebumps, and you understand what's going on here. Jesus appears to these two disciples. They are disappointed. They're disenchanted. They're down their gloom and doom. We thought Jesus was the Messiah, but he's not. He's not. So Jesus says, hey, boys, you had Moses, you had the prophets, 
didn't the Bible, didn't your scriptures talk about the fact the Messiah should have suffered just like this Jesus did? They do not recognize him as Jesus. That this Jesus did, ought not the Messiah have gone through this? Ought, and doesn't the Christ, shouldn't these things have happened to the Christ? And then Jesus says, let's go to the scriptures. Moses and the prophets is a euphemism for what you would hold in your hand called the Old Testament. Jesus goes to their scriptures that they believed and lived their life by. And he starts in Genesis. He says, you know, right here in Genesis, obviously they didn't have numbers like we have, but right here in Genesis, in the Garden of Eden, when original sin occurs, God says to Satan, he's gonna bru- you're going to bruise his heel, the seed of the woman, and he's going to crush your head. And Jesus said, hey, boys, that's me. That's the Christ. And he begins to reveal himself to them. And he takes them to the ark where the eight souls are saved through the water. And he said, that's a picture of me. The serpent, where Moses holds up the serpent in numbers. He said, when they, lift, when they looked at the serpent on the pole, they survived. That's a picture of looking to me, to the Christ on the cross. On and on and on. He takes them all the way through the, all the prophecies, the born of a virgin, the, the triumphal entry, the bones not being broken, being buried in the tomb uh, of a rich man, being with the, the thieves, on and on. Hundreds of prophecies fulfilled by this Jesus of Nazareth. Ought not he, is he not the Messiah? You know what you're reading there in Luke 24? The greatest Bible study that's ever happened in the history of Bible study. That's even better than precept. It's incredible. Jesus sat them down and went through the scriptures and said, when you read this, that's about me. When you read this, that's about me. When you, Every book, Psalms, Hosea, Leviticus, pick a book, Malachi. says, this is about the Messiah. This is about the Christ. I am the Christ. You see, the Old Testament writers wrote about a Messiah who would be a king. So culturally, historically, when Jesus was on earth and the Pharisees, they were preaching that the Messiah was going to come in as a a conquering king, overthrow the Romans and set up the kingdom on earth. And they thought Jesus was going to do that. When he did not, they were disappointed. They were down. In the upper room discourse, there's a reason Jesus kept saying, let not your heart be troubled, let not your heart be troubled, let not your heart be troubled. Yes, I'm going away, but I'm going to send the Holy Spirit, the Comforter, to be with you. Let not your heart be over and over, he says it, because they were down. And he knew it, and he knew they were going to be. We talked about when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, and they couldn't even stay awake. He basically was alone. But he knew this thing, the church, was coming, his body. And he said, the gates of hell will not prevail against my church. So these Old Testament writers wrote about a Messiah who would be king. But they also wrote, as the Holy Spirit, God told them to, they wrote about a Messiah who would suffer and who would die. And they could not rationalize the two. That was the mystery. I want you to understand how special it is to be the church. 1 Peter chapter 1, the Bible says this. Receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls, 
of this salvation, now Peter's writing to the church, of this salvation that we possess, the prophets have inquired and searched carefully, who prophesied of the grace that would come to you. Old Testament prophets prophesying about the grace that would come to the church. Searching water, what manner of time the Spirit of Christ, the Messiah, who was in them, was indicating when he was testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. To them it was revealed that not to themselves, but to us, they were now, they were ministering the things which have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things from heaven, things which angels desire to look into. Incredible. A mystery in scripture simply means a truth that has been hidden, but has now been revealed. Here's what Peter is saying. The angels desire to understand what we, the church, know in the real sense of what it means to be the body of Christ. And all that the prophets were writing about, Jesus came and we are a part of that. We get to share with the world the reality of who Jesus Christ is, this mystery. It's been, verse 26 again, back in Colossians, this mystery of the church has been revealed to us the children of God. Verse 26, the mystery which has been hidden from ages, we just talked about from generations, but now has been revealed to his saints, the church age. We are this incredible miracle we talked about last week. We are the saints of God. I'll say it one more time, just make sure we're all on the same page. Saint does not mean super Christian. What is a saint? Y'all not so sure about that, are you? What's a saint? Here's what I want you to do. So we're all going to be sure. We'll just pretend like we're highly Pentecostal for a moment. Woo! Now, pay attention. I want you to turn to the person next to you and say, you are a saint of God. Go ahead. Put that finger right in their face. That's not so comfortable, is it? You are a saint of God. Particularly if that's your spouse there, you better smile when you're doing it. And particularly if that's your husband, you better smile. Because you're like, I don't know, a saint, come on now, we're going a little far, aren't we, Randy? Don't you understand the beauty? This is Peter that's writing this. Hey, how, how did Peter do when Jesus needed him the most? Is he not the poster child for the ones who let Jesus down? I don't know, denied Jesus three times around the fire with a little servant girl? Peer pressure. He couldn't even say, I knew Jesus to a little servant girl at the fire. Here's what he said. I don't know him. I don't know him. And then he cursed in a way that I can't say in this setting, but that's what he did. He said, by God, I do not know him. Now, if he's a saint, what does that say about you? You're cool, because you're not perfect. Don't you love the story in John 20, after all that, when Jesus appears to Peter, what does he say to him? Three times he asks him a question, doesn't he? Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Feed my sheep. And Jesus knew that Peter was struggling with loving him. You read the responses in Greek, he was struggling with it. He said, Lord, you know, you're my friend. That's not what Jesus was looking for, was it? What he was looking for was agape, unconditionally, sacrificially. Lord, I love you the way you love me. 
Jesus said, now you get up and you go find that love. You go feed my sheep, tend my sheep, feed my sheep. Remember I mentioned it earlier this morning? Why do we exist as sheep to do what? Make more sheep. Make more sheep. Find people who need Jesus Christ, introduce them to Jesus Christ, see them born again, and then disciple them. They might be living in your own home. Wherever it is, that's why you, you're here. That's why I'm here. That's why the church exists. We understand the mystery of the church. It's been revealed to us because we're the children of God. But look at verse 27. It's not only been revealed to us. It's such a beautiful picture. It means the riches of God for Jews and Gentiles. Verse 27. The saints, that means all believers. To them, the saints, God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. When it says God willed to make known, that literally means the full details of what we'll know on this earth about this mystery. He's revealed it to us, to them, the saints, the church, the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles. And you've got to understand historically and culturally, Paul was saved by, Saul of Tarsus was saved by Jesus and given the ministry to take the gospel to the Gentiles. The, the church began at Jerusalem, Acts 1 through 7, it's at Jerusalem. They're together, they're afraid to go out. Jesus had told them to go where? Going all the world into the nations, that's the Gentiles, go to the nations and make disciples of them. They were all Jewish at that point. Did they want to go talk to Gentiles? No. Not only did they not want to go, they did not want to see Gentiles saved. They didn't like them. They thought they were, they thought they were less than human. They wanted nothing to do with the Romans and the Gentiles. They hated anything non-Jewish. They had to be changed. Peter struggled with this. Paul had to get in his face about it. God had to send him a vision and send him to spend the night with Cornelius, a Roman centurion. It's the last thing that a Jew would ever do, was spend the night with a Roman. But after it was all over, the Holy Spirit got all over Peter. And here's what Peter said. Powerful, I now perceive that God is no respecter of persons. Wouldn't that help the church in Memphis, Tennessee, you think? Don't you think that would help the church in our country and around our world for people to understand that God does not see anything but who you are spiritually? Not culturally. He knows you shouldn't deny your culture. But every single human being that's ever walked planet Earth or will walk planet Earth is equal at the foot of the cross. And they're all saved the same way. It does not matter their background, their power, their position, or their color. They had to learn that. That mystery has been revealed to the church so that we can live it, we can share it, we can say to our world, we understand the riches are for Jews and Gentiles. The riches of the glory of this mystery. Glory, again, means to reveal what something, give a correct estimate of what something is worth. So for, when they went into the world with the message that Jews and Gentiles are equal, 
give you another little point. They went into the world with a message that men and women were equal. Do you think men and women were equal in that culture? No, women were property. Now, I know that sounds good to some of us. <laughs> but in that culture, you owned your wife. She was your property. In the synagogue, women didn't sit where the men sat. Women weren't allowed to participate. Women were owned. So then God comes along, Paul comes along and writes, oh, by the way, women are equal too. What? I mean, God, you've gone a little too far now. Not only that, Jews are equal, women are equal. And I'll give you another one, Paul said. If you're a slave owner, that slave is equal to you in Christ. Whoa, whoa, whoa. You're all up in my stuff now, my business. We can't have that. There's a whole book in the New Testament, the little book of Philemon. The whole book is written because of a runaway slave who ran to Paul at Rome, got saved, and Paul sent him back to say to his owner, by the way, this is no longer your property. He's your brother in Christ, and I'll pay all his debts. What a testimony. You see, the church is different. We understand the mystery. It's been revealed to us that the riches are for both Jews and Gentiles. Look at verse 27 again. The reward is this, the end of verse 27, Christ in you, the hope of glory. You've heard me say it a million times, and every funeral I do, I focus on this word, hope. It means, in Greek, confident expectation. Whether you're a Jew, a Gentile, a man, a woman, a slave, or a free man, in Christ, your hope is the exact same. Your confident expectation is, is glory. You are a child of God. You are a saint. There's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one body, Jew and Gentile. Radical, crazy, different. But if you study history, even if you don't believe the Bible and you throw it out the trash when you get home, if you study history, the early centuries, 100, 200, 300, Study what the Christians, followers of the way, study what they did to the world. The Bible says they turned the world upside down. If you don't believe it, just go study it. Now in time, they messed up. But that early church, because they believed the resurrection, because they believed the church, because they believed the body of Christ, they willingly went to their death as martyrs. They willingly did. When no one else would help lepers, because they were ostracized and thrown out. Who went to them and took care of them? The church did. Who started the hospitals that cared for people no one else would care for? The church did. Why? Because we know that mystery's been revealed to us. We understand what it really means to love someone. That love is not a reciprocal thing. I don't love you because you give me something. I don't love you because you love me back. I don't love you because I want something from you. I love you because you exist. That's it. Even if you hate me, I love you. That's Christianity. Nobody else thinks that way. What did Jesus say hanging on the cross? After all they'd done to him, what did he say? Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. 
Peter, uh, Stephen was being stoned to death in Acts chapter 7. Saul of Tarsus, who's not saved yet, standing there. He's probably had a, he's consenting unto his death, the Bible says. He had a lot to do with Stephen being stoned to death. And as Stephen dies, they're pounding him with those stones. And as he's dying, he looks up. And what does he see? Jesus. And what, is, what does Stephen say? Don't hold this to his count. Forgive them. That's not, it's, that's not normal. That's heavenly. That's spiritual. That's real. That's what the church is. We so watered it down in America, and we've made it so mamby-pamby, and we, we don't even, people don't even, they don't think church, they don't think something that really can help me and change me. They think, well, I like this church, I like that one, and, and that guy's kind of cool, he dresses neat, and that Randy guy's stupid, but he's all right. We choose our church based on the show, not on what can I do for the body of Christ. What can I do? Because I love Jesus. It's been revealed to us. And our world desperately wants to know the secret. Guess what? You know it. You know the secret of love. You know the secret of relationships. You know what it means to have peace and hope. We ought to be shouting it from every rooftop we can. Major Ian Thomas years ago was writing about this. And he wrote this in one of his books talking about this Christ in us, the hope of glory. Jesus had to be what he was in order to do what he did. He had to do what he did in order that we might have what he is. We must have what he is in order to be what he was. Christ in us is the hope of glory. If we want our world to see Christ, they've got to see the hope that's in us. Now, I told you a couple of weeks ago, and I've quoted it several times, and it's not original to me, but there's a book that was written a couple of years ago called The Fifth Gospel. It says there are four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and there's a fifth Gospel. That's you. And most people don't read the first four. But they sure read me, don't they? And they sure read you. Because we're in relationships with them. We're in relationships with them. Now look at verse 28, and let's look at the maturity of the church. Because here's where it proceeds. We don't stop. Verse 28. Him we preach, Christ. Christ in new hope of glory. Christ we preach. Now notice what we do. Warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect or mature in Christ Jesus. To this end, I, Paul, also labor, striving according to his working, which works in me mightily. So here's what we do, the maturity of the church. Number one, we preach Christ. Yes, we do it from pulpits, and yes, we do it in classrooms, but you also do it at work. You do it at home. You do it on the Internet. You do it however you, whether you Snapchat or you Facebook or Instagram, whatever you do. Those are opportunities to preach Christ. Because preaching literally means, in the original language, to publicly declare a completed event or truth. In other words, hear ye, hear ye. That's what it is. In the name of the emperor, that's what it was. In the name of the emperor, I have an announcement. In our lives as Christians, that's what we do. Hear ye, hear ye. Let me tell you about Christ in me, the hope of glory. We have the authority as the church to herald that truth. That's what it's talking about. The message that we preach, that we herald, is Christ. We are the saints. 
believers, church, we preach. Notice, we warn every man. You see that right there in that verse, 28? We warn every man. Literally what that means is you counsel them that there is punishment coming for your sin. You counsel them. You warn them. You're not going to get away with this. Jesus came and paid that price so you could be born again. Warn. We preach. We warn. Our goal is to present mature believers. All preaching. What's the great commission going to all the world to make what? Oh, we've got to go over all that again. Going to all the world to make what? Disciples. Learner followers. Going to, to the nations. Make learner followers of me. If you go back to the upper room discourse, Jesus said, the Holy Spirit's going to come. He's going to remind you of what I've taught you. He's going to teach you all truth about me. He's going to bring you to him. And then we are to go into the world and teach other. make sheep, make more sheep. After you make those sheep, do you abandon them? Unfortunately, evangelical church, a lot of times that's been our attitude. Just get them saved. Don't worry about it. That's not what evangelism is in the Bible. Evangelism is make learner followers. It's not evangelism, discipleship. They're not separate. It's one thing. We want people to come to know Christ. We want them to grow and mature. Here's why. You're not going to be here forever. I'm not going to be here forever. So anybody that I can pour myself into and share Jesus Christ with and help them mature in their faith, is that not going to be good for the kingdom after I'm gone? Sure it is. Same thing with you. That's why two things are going on here. I've got to have a goal in my life to grow, to constantly never, never be satisfied because if you're satisfied, you're going to back up. You're going to be stagnant. Never be satisfied, no matter who you are, no matter how long you've been saved. This week, Tuesday, this week, I'll be a Christian, 46 years, April 19th, 46 years. I still am amazed how stupid I am, how much I have to learn, how much in the Word of God I want to learn. That motivates me, and I'm glad I still have that motivation. I'm still thrilled to open the Bible and read and learn and let God teach me and convict me and move me. It's important to warn that we want to mature, to grow, whether it's your children, your grandchildren, friends, people you work with, whatever, the opportunities you have to impact people for the cause of Christ. You want them to grow, to mature. Notice in in verse 28, he says, every man, every man, every man, three times that we're interested in everybody we care. Look at chapter 2, verse 2. It should be right there near you. Obviously, down like three verses, Randy, ignorant. Chapter 2, verse 2. Notice the description of these are maturing believers. Their hearts are encouraged, being knit together in love, attaining to all riches of the full assurance of understanding to the knowledge of the mystery of God, both of the Father and and of Christ. That's a maturing believer. That we're knit together in love. I use that phrase in one of our sermon series. That we're understanding. We're growing in wisdom. Wisdom is seeing things the way God sees them. That we're maturing. We're, we're wanting to become everything God wants us to be so that I can help you, you can help me, and we can make more sheep. Maturing, growing, never satisfied. Not getting sideways over insignificant issues. Focused on what's important. Seeing other people born again. We're encouragers. We're peacemakers. We're rich spiritually. 
That's what we're going to talk about next week, how rich we are spiritually in Christ. One last, last thing we're going to hit today is verse 29. Number three on your outline, that's what we're going to do next week or begin to do next week. So the last one, verse 29, we're powered by God in us. To this end, Paul says, I labor, striving according to his working, which works in me mightily. To this end, here's what Paul's saying. My goal is that people mature. That's to this end. I labor. In Greek, that means I work to the point of exhaustion. Striving, and that word, we get our word, English word, agonize, from that phrase. We agonize. We strive. Just pull. I turned on the TV this week, and there was some guy, they were showing he was working out. It was a unique workout. The dude was pulling a school bus. And I'm thinking, that hurts to watch. That's what you see Paul here agonizing over how much he loved the church and wanted to see them mature. And look up here, I'm going to tell you a true story, and then we're going to go into communion, because I think this story is so apropos and helps so much in understanding how special it is to be the church that we're different. We're not just another option of a reli- another religion. We've been changed. We, have, we understand the mystery. We know truth. We've been set free. And we want people to know that. This is a true story. Philip Yancey wrote in his book, Rumors of Another World. It's a story that happened during apartheid in South Africa. There was a policeman named Vanderbrock. That's his last name. This policeman, Vanderbrock, and some other officers went in and they shot an 18-year-old boy. They put him on a spit like, a, like you would do a, a, hit, a hog or a pig, and they barbecued him to the point there was nothing left but ashes while his mother watched. Eight years later, these same policemen go back to that same home. They drag her husband out. They pour gasoline on him and set him on fire and make her watch him burn. Well, after apartheid, these guys are on trial. Well, this particular guy, Vanderbrook, is on trial, and the widow and the mom is in the courtroom while the trial is going on. The judge asks her, elderly woman at this point, Vanderbrook had taken her son and her husband, and the judge said, what would you like to say to this man, or what would you like from this man? Now, the normal human response would be what? I want him burned. I want him slaughtered slowly. I want him to know the pain my husband knew, my son knew, that I've known, that I still know, right? And in real sense, would we would we've been, it'd been hard for us to condemn her for that, wouldn't it? And the natural human response. I want you to listen to what she said. True story. What do you want from him? She said, number one, I want him to go to the place where he burned my husband gather up the ashes, bring them to me so I can give him a decent burial. Vanderbrook nodding his head. He don't have a choice, but he's nodding his head. I'll do that. And then she said, I have one last request. He took all my family, but I still have a lot of love to give. Twice a month, I want him to come to my house in the ghetto, spend the day with me so I can be a mother to him. I want him to know he's forgiven by God and I forgive him too. I want to embrace him so he can know that forgiveness is real. 
Everybody in the courtroom jumped up and started singing spontaneously Amazing Grace. And they turned to Mr. Vanderbrook to see his response. He had passed out. What did he learn that day? Oh, my God. This woman is real. That's love. That's forgiveness. That's not human. We would all have struggled to do that. We could, she could only do that because of the Christ in her, her hope of glory, right? That's how special it is to be a Christian. That's what it means to understand the mystery of the church. We know the secrets. We know life is temporal. We know what's important. We know what's beyond the grave. And as we get ready to celebrate communion, here's my challenge to you. You don't have to go to this church to take communion. If you're born again, you're welcome. But as you take that juice and that body, think about Jesus Christ and realize if he'd not given his body, he had not given his blood, he had no hope. He had no hope. But he did, didn't he? You know what it says in this very same book that we were just reading from in Colossians? Chapter 3 says, you forgive others as you've been forgiven. She did that, didn't she? I sure hope I could do that. That's my goal, to be like Jesus, because she sure was. Would you bow your heads, please? Lord, we thank you for all the truth that's in Scripture, but Lord, I thank you for examples like Horatio Spafford and like this lady. Don't even know her name. What a testimony. What a testimony to be able to forgive like that because Jesus forgave her. Lord, I pray that for Randy. I pray that for every Christian seated here as we celebrate the Lord's Supper together. We are the church, the magnificent body of Christ, Christ in us, that incredible hope of glory. I pray we would share that in a loving way with each other and then with our lost world that we enter when we leave these premises. And Lord, we just commit this time to you in the name of Jesus. Amen.